I remember three things from fourth grade. And I think this is pretty much it, only these three things. First, my teacher's name was Mrs. McFarland. I remember that. Secondly, I remember that Patrick Scanlon could kick the kickball farther than anyone else in the entire grade. And thirdly, I remember that Dusty stole my picture. And it's that third one that honestly, I remember in the most vivid detail, okay? I still feel the pain of that, and so I'm going to share that story with you today, okay? <laughs> I remember the assignment was, it was in the art portion of the day, and each one of us were, she passed out, Mrs. McFarland passed out a sheet of paper, and each one of us pulled out all of our crayons and our, our colored pencil box, and each one of us had a blank sheet of paper, and we could create whatever, whatever creature we wanted. We were to invent our own creature, you know? So, um, you know, the girl sitting next to me, hers was going to be like all glitter, glittery and sparkly like a unicorn. You know, my, my picture and most of us was going to be like this ferocious beast with like talons and horns and fangs, okay? And so like I was starting to color um, this, this picture. It was like my own monster that I was getting to invent and I was pouring myself in all the, the colors. And it was going to be something that we worked on all week. And so we started day one and she collected all the papers and she would pass them back out the next day during the art portion of the day. So day two came, it was probably Tuesday, and um, she, she calls each person's name and she passes out you know, to each person's picture. And then she said, there's one left, but it doesn't have a name on it. And she says, whose is it? And I realized that I hadn't gotten mine and I looked and sure enough, that was my picture. I remember every detail that I had started to draw and oh, that's right, I was gonna have like four eyeballs, I remember, and it was gonna have seven horns on it and I had pictured like this monster and all the colors I did and I was like, ah, oh, I forgot to write my name on it. And so she said, whose picture is this? And I raised my hand at the exact same time as Dusty. And I look over at Dusty. Now, here's what you need to know about Dusty. Dusty was notorious in our class for lying. He made up stuff all the time. All of us knew he made up stories. He said there were things he did that he didn't do, things he accomplished that he didn't. And so I knew. I knew because that's my picture. I had poured myself into it. But I also knew because Dusty was lying, okay? And so we're sitting there, and the poor Mrs. McFarland, she's at a stalemate. Who does she believe? Does she believe me? Does she believe Dusty? She's not going to get in the middle of that. And so we sat there kind of at a stalemate, and finally I said, okay, I will give in, give Dusty what I know is my monster. He says it's his. I'm going to let him have it. And so she gave me a fresh piece of paper, and I had to start completely over on on uh, my own creature, my own beast, and I poured myself into trying to make something bigger and better. Well, Wednesday came along. By the way, I made sure I wrote my name on it. I learned my lesson. <laughs> wrote my name on it. Wednesday came along, and she passes everyone's out, and she comes up to me, and this time she has two pieces of paper in her hand. And she says, uh, Roby, I need to talk to you for a second. Um, later in the day, Dusty found his monster. And so, his creature. So you have the option. Do you want the new one you started yesterday, or do you want the one originally that was yours all along that you had on Monday? And she showed me that picture. And I see where I had drawn my original perfect beast as I had imagined it. And I had on there Dusty's incoherent scribbles 
all over, ruining my masterpiece. And in all of that pain, I said, forget it. I can't even look at that one. I'll take the one that I started over with on Tuesday. Okay, now why do I tell you this incredible story, okay? I believe this story is incredible, not because of what actually happened, but the level of detail, I can still remember what happened, okay? I can vividly remember, I can actually remember parts of the picture that I had colored. I can tell you what chair, what desk I sat at in that class, and I can remember very little else about fourth grade, okay? But I remember so much detail, and I think that communicates something about an inner impulse in our lives. Man, when you've poured yourself into something, when you've created it, when, when you've imagined it, when you've like built something, you feel a level of ownership over it, right? And if someone else takes credit for something you've poured, your time, your effort, your creativity, if someone takes credit for something you have poured yourself into, that feels like a deep injustice. So for example, at work, you have, uh, you're working hard on uh, a client or an account or a project or a proposal or whatever it may be. You've been working really hard on it. If someone else gets the credit, that makes you very, very angry, right? Yes. Okay, if you have poured yourself into something, and there's all types of stuff, we pour ourselves into the things that we own. We pour ourselves into our relationships. We pour ourselves into our career. There's so many aspects of our lives that we've poured ourselves into. We feel a sense of ownership. In fact, there's even laws that protect property and even intellectual property. There are laws that protect it from the injustice of someone laying claim to something that we own or something that belongs to us. Okay. How we view the things that we own is very, very important for what we're talking about today. We're in a uh, City Changers series, and there's several different things we've talked about. We've talked about through this series. We've talked about being incarnational. How do we bear fruit in our lives? How do we, each of us individually, take some involvement and see how, our, how we participate in seeing South Florida transform? That's something that we're all going to do as we go out into our spheres, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our friend groups. We go out as City Changers. It's not just something that happens here. It's something we go out and do. So we've talked about... We're called biblically to be incarnational. You and I, as we go to our neighborhoods and our workplaces and wherever we go, we are the presence of Christ there. We show love to whoever God puts in our path. We've talked about how we are innovative. And since we're made in the image of a creator, we're made in his image, every time we innovate, every time we think up something new, whatever field that you're in, and whatever you make better, whether it's in education or law enforcement or medicine or construction, whatever you make new and better, whatever you innovate blesses the city, and that's operating in the image of God. We talked about being industrious. Your work matters. My work matters. Your work every day is an opportunity to worship. And as you do what you do, as doing it for the Lord with excellence, with hard work, God uses it. We've talked about our influence. 
We've talked about how each one of us, whether you have position or not, because sometimes the most influential person in the room is the person who doesn't have the official title or position. You have influence you leverage at school, at work, with your friends, with your family. You have influence that you leverage, and you have the opportunity to leverage that influence for justice and righteousness, to speak into where you see oppression, to speak into where you see someone being hurt or forgotten or neglected. You have an opportunity to leverage that influence. We've talked about integrity, that as we do, as we walk through uh, our lives and we do it with standing by truth without giving in to the shortcuts and the cutting corners and the cheating and the lying, we're modeling for the rest of the city the way that we can operate in a way that honors God. I mean, just think about just that. Man, if we could influence the city to have integrity, just that would transform our city. You're called to have integrity. We've talked about be, you're called to leverage the parts of our culture that inspire. The Christians shouldn't run away from the things that are storytelling, things that are creative, the things that are artistic, the things that are entertaining. No, those things inspire culture, run to those places. Last week, Pastor Justin was talking to us about intercession. I mean, just again, just think about any one of these by themselves. Can you imagine if every Christian in South Florida took the call to pray for each other, for their churches, for their families, and for their cities seriously, and we are all driven to intercede on behalf of our city. I mean, just that could transform our city. I mean, any one of these individually could have a tremendous impact on our city, could bring about city transformation, but all of them together, it's the recipe for Christians going out into the world and seeing a city transformed. But the one that we're looking at today in some ways, it's the most endangered. And in some ways, if we don't get this one right, it makes all the other ones not sustainable. This one's so critical. And it really confronts parts of our life that we feel like we have the right the ownership to define or not. I want to show you what I mean. We're going to look in a book of the Bible called Ephesians. If you have a Bible or Bible app open to Ephesians, we're going to look at two different parts of Ephesians. Paul starts a conversation in chapter 1, and then he's going to pick it up in, in chapter 4. But I want to show you what this says. Now, here's the background of Ephesians. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote one to the city in Colossae, one to the city of Corinth, Thessalonica, Rome, the whole region of Galatia. He wrote all these letters. This one to Ephesians is interesting because he spent probably the most time in Ephesus. He spent a solid two years there. And throughout that first generation, if you look at how Ephesians is referenced in the book of Revelation, they were known as having a very rich, deep, mature faith possibly because of all the time the apostle Paul and his team spent there. And so the book of Ephesians is sometimes known as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It is just so rich. And so what I want you to lean in on is if you have been following Jesus for a long time and consider yourself a seasoned believer, this that we're going to read is meat. This, I want you to lean in and be transformed. 
If you're a new Christian, you're like, man, I, I'm not a seasoned Christian, but I want to be. If you're a new Christian, lean in because this is going to feed you. This might elevate your thinking about who Jesus is, who you are in Christ. Lean in. If you're not a Christian, I want you to see what this says because maybe you're analyzing and wondering about the person of Jesus or wondering about this whole thing called Christianity. Lean in because this is going to show you like 401 level faith that, that Paul is addressing here. I want you to see where this goes, some of the, the most brilliant, beautiful things that the scripture declares about following Jesus. I want you to lean in. Well, we're going to start in Ephesians um, chapter 1, and I want you to take a look at verse 15, and I'm going to read you this whole sentence. You're going to see this is one long, jam-packed, run-on sentence. I want to read this whole first sentence to you. It's it's pretty incredible. Verse 15 says this. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Whew. That is one jam-packed sentence right there. Okay. He's addressing the Ephesians. This is towards the beginning of the letter. Um, what does he say? He says, man, I, re I remember you but I've heard that you're still thriving spiritually. And he says, I praise God for that. And he says, I've heard of your love for the saints. And he mentions the word saints again in, in this passage. Um, let me just define that term. In modern times, when we think about saints, we tend to think about people like Mother Teresa, like people who are like really a cut above like the top like 0.1% of Christians in history. They go down and people, you make statues of them and paint, paint paintings of them and you have to do miracles, like a set of miracles to become a saint. And that is kind of what tradition has said that saints are, but that's not how the Bible defines the idea of a saint. The Bible defines a saint as anyone who is a follower of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God in the flesh, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that that death actually pays for your sins, it's the punishment that you should have paid, dies on the cross on the third day, God brings him back to life, defeating all sin, defeating death itself and that resurrection, that death and that resurrection are applied to you so that your sins are forgiven and that one day when you die, you actually will rise up to heaven. 
If you believe that and you've made Jesus your Savior, you say, look, it's not about me doing a bunch of good things. It's about what Jesus has done for me. He is my Savior. I can't get to heaven. I can't uh, be reconciled to God. I can't do enough good to deal with my sins. I need to be saved. Jesus is my Savior. And because he's my Savior, I've made him my king. I obey him. I follow him. I submit to him. He's my Savior and my Lord. If that defines you, and you say, look, that defines me, but I got to tell you, I don't do that perfectly by a long shot. If that defines you, Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, you are a saint. Now you're saying, okay, look, if I'm a saint, that's a way lower bar than I thought sainthood had. No, that's the that's the incredible message of the Bible. You may, you may look at your life at what you are, but actually that's the message of this passage. He's saying, I pray that you could have the knowledge, the eyes to see, you, it could be revealed to you that you could understand what he's made you to be. We, see, we simply look at ourselves and say, well, I did good this week, so I pat myself on the shoulder. I did not do good this week, so now I feel down in the dumps. He says, no, no. He says, I'm praying that you can see the incredible work that God has done making you into something you can't even imagine. You follow me? He says, I know of your love for the saints, and he says, I'm praying for you. He says, I'm praying that you could grasp something amazing, that you'd have the knowledge, that you would have the, the wisdom, that you, that you would have the eyes to see, that you would have the revelation, that you could see what he's saying. I'm praying that you have the enlightenment to see what is true about you. And he talks about the power of God. Now, you know, you come to church and you talk about the power of God. And we could talk about that every week and probably to some degree do talk about the power of God, do sing about the power of God. But we can just, because we talk about it and think about it and say it so much, forget the gravity of the power of God. We can get so, so worn over that concept that we're no longer awestruck by the power of God. I was recently in um, my friend's uh, fishing boat and uh, we were... Uh, went down, we're in the Biscayne Bay area, and they have all these huge cruise ships and all these huge uh, freighters. And I don't know if you've ever been on a small fishing boat and been right near a massive cruise ship or a massive freighter. If you've ever had that experience, either in the port or in the bay or even just out in the ocean, if you've ever been near one of those things, there's a very unique feeling you have. And it's not, wow, look at that cool big boat. I don't know how to describe it. It's unexpected. It kind of overtakes you. There's this feeling. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. It's a type of fear. As you're looking straight up at this massive vessel that could swallow you, it could sail over you and not notice as you're, and even if you're not threatened to get run over by it, you're just looking at something so immense, it's intimidating. And you feel this discomfort or this fear. 
I don't know if you've actually ever been on a cruise and been then out on one of those big boats and been out in the middle of the ocean where you look in any direction and all you see is horizon. And that can be a very cool feeling. But if you let your thoughts linger and you start thinking about as you're standing on the edge, you like look down the edge and it's really dark blue and you start thinking like how far down it is and how many hundreds or thousands and thousands of feet it is below you, maybe miles. And suddenly this big old boat, you realize how easily this ocean could just dwarf it and not even notice. You can very quickly feel small even on the big boat, right? But you know, there's a dynamic that um, astronauts have talked about when they get out of uh, Earth's orbit, and especially the astronauts who've been over to the moon and look back, they have this feeling when they look back and see the whole planet just there, this whole blue planet, there's this dynamic that almost all of them have experienced. It's this sense of reverent awe as they look back at a world all they've ever known or imagined or thought of, all that is familiar is right there on that small, blue, vulnerable planet. And if it moves just too much close to the burning, unimaginable inferno that the sun is, it would be incinerated like that. If it wobbles just a little too far out into the harsh, cold violence and emptiness of outer space, it would freeze into nothingness. And suddenly looking back at those blue oceans in that planet, there's a feeling of fear of how small that our planet really is in the scope of the universe. But you know, they've recently discovered something that might be the most terrifying thing in the universe. They've discovered at the center of some of the largest galaxies, black holes that are so large the black hole itself is larger than the orbit of Jupiter. Not larger than Jupiter. Larger than the path Jupiter takes around the sun. In, in other words, if you placed it over our solar system, about half of the solar system would immediately be gone. And I see, I misunderstood what a black hole was. I thought it was a hole. I thought it was emptiness or nothingness that maybe transported you into some other dimension, but that's not what a black hole is. A black hole is not nothingness. It's more close to the opposite. It is such density of matter that has collapsed on itself. It's more everythingness than nothingness. It is so dense that its gravitational pull is so almost incalculable that it can be at the center of a vast galaxy and its gravity affects the entire galaxy of billions or maybe trillions of stars. It is so strong. The, the gravitational pull of a black hole is so strong, light itself cannot escape from it. That's power. Now I want you to put yourself by one of these massive black holes in your small fishing boat. Be small for a second. Be fragile. And then imagine that God breathes 
the celestial bodies out of his mouth. He spoke a word, and they didn't just obey him. They burst into existence. Imagine that black holes tremble before Jesus Christ. That's power. Now, here's the crazy thing. What he said here is that he wants us to grasp the power of God and how it's leveraged to you, toward you, for you, and in you. That power is being leveraged in and for you. What does that mean? Well, look where he goes. Let's read these last two verses in chapter one. This is um, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet. That's Jesus Christ who had been dead and raised back. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is so jam-packed that commentators have debated just those two verses, all that it could possibly mean, and all of the options of what this might mean are stunning, startling, and staggering. I want you to see what he says here. Uh, let me just show you all the things that he declared. First of all, Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father on the throne, is over all things. Everything has been put under his feet. He's not just positionally over all things. He's had victory over all things. His rule is capably, actively over all things. Jesus is in charge. He's ruling. He's been made the head of the church. He's in charge of the church. He's the chief shepherd of the church. The church obeys him. The church follows his lead. He's placed head over the church. And then it says he's been given to the church. Can you fathom that Jesus Christ has been given as a gift, this one with all this power and authority whose name is above every name, has been given as a gift? To the church it says that he's so then it says that we the church his people are his body now this is where things start to get really startling and if you think about it even uncomfortable it's one thing to say he's the head of the church you could say like you know he's the head of state or he's the head of the department it could just mean that he's in charge but to then say that we're his body creates a type of relationship with this all-powerful one where he is allowing us to accomplish things on his behalf. This is stunning. He then says that um, he is the one that fills all things. There is every part of the universe, every galaxy, every planet, every nation, every city, every company, every industry, every neighborhood, every friend group, every family, 
is filled by Jesus. In other words, it's under his influence, under his impact, under his reign or his rule. There is nothing that is untouchable to Jesus. He fills everything, and then he says this, and I really want you to stretch your imagination to understand what this is. Let me read it again. He says, which is his, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see what it's saying? We are uh, somehow the fullness of the one who fills everything. How could it be that someone of such unbelievable power and glory and majesty and victory then left creation, goes back to heaven, leaving us to fulfill and be the fullness of him who left so that he could leave us on his mission as his representatives. Do you see how this is making at soaring heights not only who Jesus is, but what God's intentions are for his people? Do you see this? Staggering what God's expectations are for his people by daring to call us not only his body, but to say that we fulfill him who fills everything. That means we're to be his presence in every part of creation. He calls us his body. Now, this is not where he ends this discussion of his body. So to pick this up, we've got to jump over to chapter 4. Let me show you what it says. I've got to read through this. Ephesians chapter 4, let me read you what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's what he says. He says, okay, let's return then. He spends the rest of chapter 2 and 3 unpacking the mysteries of what God has done, what Jesus has done on our behalf and who he's made us to be. Then he gets back and picks up this conversation in chapter 4 saying, now, back to then who we are. And he starts with this concept. Here's who we are. We're one. Church. Unity is not something we pursue. It's something we are. We have one Lord. If Jesus is your Lord and you find someone else that may be so different than you, but Jesus is their Lord, you're one with them. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one Spirit. Anyone else who has Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they have the same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. And he says, because of that unity, that you are. We are one. Some people look at that and they say, well, I'm part of this church, not that church. They're different. If they have Jesus, we're one. We're, we talk about our vision of reaching South Florida. It's not City Rev. It's the, we're part of the church of South Florida reaching South Florida. If they lift up Jesus and Jesus is their Lord and Savior, they're our brothers and sisters. 
We're one. Others say, well, my problem is I just, it's just me and Jesus. I do my own thing. That's not what the Bible says. No, you're one. You, if you have Jesus, you're part of a larger whole. We're one. Now let's wrap this up. I want you to jump down to verse 11. I wish we could read through all of this chapter, but let's jump down to 11. Look what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the who? What's the word there? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says this. He says, so he's given the leaders in the church pastors and teachers, ministers. He's given the leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry so as a church we can continue to grow to all maturity. What is the gift of the church? What has he, what has he provided so we can grow to maturity? Well, look, what you want in a church, you got to have music that you like. If it has music that you like, it's a style you like, you know, they're good, you know. It's got to have the right programming for your kids and for your, you know, your, your students. You know, you got to be able to find friends there, you know. Or maybe there's a ministry that you like and you've, as long as it gives you those opportunities, you know, the, the preacher's got to be tolerable, okay. Like if you just stomach the sermon, I mean, it's got to be at least halfway decent. Like they've got to, I mean, they've got to have like a good brand and good social media. No, that's not what he says, that's not, how this, that's not how the church grows to mature, maturity. He says he's given the ministers and the leaders to equip who to do the works of ministry. Who was it? The saints. Let's finish this chapter up, or this section up. Let's pick it up, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does it look like to have a strong church? What does it look like to have a healthy church? It's every part of the body working properly every part active. That means there's no part of the body of Christ that are cancer cells. There's no part of the church that's actually causing more damage to the body than help. There's no parts of the church that have paralysis. They're just there, but they're not a part of it. There's no parts of the body that are severed and detached and dying. There's no uh, parts of, of the church that, are, are, uh, that are, are inactive and sedentary. Every part of the church is active. Now, let, let's pull these, these chapters together. What is, this, what is Paul saying? Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus has sent his people into the world to fulfill his 
mission. That in every sector of creation were the fulfillment of his rule, influencing for him. Lofty, I mean such a lofty claim as to what our goal is, what our calling is. In other words, let's make it real specific for our church. All cities need healthy churches. It's God's people. But then he defines in chapter four, what is a healthy church? Cities need healthy churches. What are healthy churches? Healthy churches are when every part of the body is active. That's what a healthy church is, according to this. In other words, if there's one part that I wanna challenge you to think about, it's this. We don't get to define what church is. God owns it. God creates it. He has rights over it. We don't get to define what the church is or our involvement in it. You know, we define our involvement in organizations in all different ways. Um, your school. Maybe you're in school. Maybe you are in college and you go to college and you're, you're, you just kind of go there. You don't really talk to anyone. You keep your head down. You go there. You do your assignment. You go get your homework. You turn it in and, and you're just trying to get the degree and move on. Others of you, when it comes to your school that you're in or that you went to, others of you are very involved. Some of you, maybe that's your friend group. You know people. You hang out with people. You're involved in clubs, or maybe you're involved in the, in the, the campus government, or maybe, you, you, um, maybe it's your alma mater. Some of you, it's like, oh, yeah, that's where I went to school. Others of you, you have a decal on the back of your car. Like, it's my alma mater. You know how their sports teams are doing. You have a sweatshirt. I mean, you define how you invo you're involved at your school. Some of you, you define how you're involved at work. For some of you, Man, you're a company man, a company woman. Like, you love where you work. You'll defend it. You know, you'll protect it. You're proud of it. Others of you are right now on the side online looking at other job opportunities, okay? You know, just checking what's out there, okay? You know, your gym. Some of you are like me. You have zero relationship to a gym, okay? Others of you, you love your gym. You go there. You know everybody, okay? You walk in. People know your name. You know their name, okay? You have a trainer. You follow their TikTok channel, okay? And it's like you're this own group. It's like you go to spinning class, and that's like your friends. You're in it together, okay? You define your relationship with the gym that you go to. Here's the thing when it comes to church. He made it. God invented it. It's his, we don't define it, we don't get to define it, and we don't get to define our relationship to it. He defines that. We don't have ownership to define that for ourselves. And, and hear, hear me on this. If we don't let the Bible transform our thinking about our relationship to the rest of our church, then culture will define it for us, and we will fall into one of two traps will either become a consumer or a connoisseur. And I'm not sure which is worse. Will a pro culture, I mean, everything in our culture is built on consumerism. There's billions of dollars invested in trying to figure out how we think when we consume products. And so it's only natural if the Bible doesn't transform how we view our involvement at church, if God doesn't set the tone for how we invo are involved in church, 
then we'll approach it like a consumer. We'll walk in and say, hey, just like I walk into a grocery store, just how I walk into to another office or some other, I'll say, hey, how, does this meet my needs? Does this meet my expectations? Does this do for me what I want or do for my family what I want? We'll walk in like a consumer. And the moment it no longer does for me what I want, I'm out. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a couple different ways we approach church as a consumer. One is tradition. Some people have tradition in their background, and so maybe they're looking for a church that, you know, is what they're used to, or maybe they were in a church, and then for a while, you know, they went off to college, they're getting their career started, they, they drifted away, and then they had kids. And they're like, oh, I need to get, I want to make sure my kids have that same tradition. And so they come find a church that's comfortable for them and uh, aligns with their tradition. Or maybe they and their spouse come from different traditions, and so they have to find one that they can both agree on as a happy medium. That's what they're consuming is something that matches their tradition. Other people, you say, look, I have no tradition when it comes to church. And so then often naturally their approach to church, church is my life coach. I come to hear tips for how to tweak my life and make it a little better. Others treat church like the doctor. When I'm, you know, when, when church and I'm down, I feel sick, things aren't going right, I'm really struggling, I'm desperate. Then, you know, I, I go back to church and it's like seeing a doctor. I might see the doctor for a season, you know, or I, I might go for a while. <coughs> they treat church like going back to the doctor. But once that season ends, they feel like, okay, I don't need it anymore. Others treat church like it's their social club. And they're there like, do they have relationships for me? Because that's what I'm looking. I don't want to find my relationships here or there. I, I want to find it at church. I'm going for those things. And those are all ways we enter in and many others that we enter in to consume. But here's the danger. We don't define church, what we want out of it, what our relationship or what our involvement is. If we do any of those, it ends up hurting us. If we operate with church out of tradition, we end up operating out of guilt. If we try and find church's coaching, we're looking for like a little bit more in our life, we'll find powerless lives. Because the power is not on your ability to tweak your life and do it a little better. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel as you're part of a community. If you're using church to just a shot in the arm when you're feeling spiritually sick, you'll find yourself perpetually sick because that's not how it's supposed to operate. It's supposed to be a part of a family. And so what you'll end up finding is finding back in a cycle of getting spiritually sick and you'll start losing, why do I even go to church? Why am I even part of a church? If you look to church as your social network, if that's what you're consuming, you'll find yourself hurt and surprised that you're wounded. And you'll back out, maybe for a long time. Now, see, we don't define church or what our involvement is. That's not ours to do. It belongs to God. We can become um, consumers or connoisseurs. And what C.S. Lewis says, he says, um, what the enemy tries to do, in his book, um, Screwtape Letters, what the enemy tries to do, if he can't stop someone from going to church, he turns them into a connoisseur of churches. And the more you're, the deeper you've been in a church, the higher level of leadership you've had, the more likely, the more tempting this trap is. And he says, here's what happens. You go to church analyzing things. Look, trying to imagine what's behind the curtain. And in the end, the enemy gets you to be a critic 
where God wants you to be a student. We don't get to define these. God defines it. Cities need healthy churches. Healthy churches means that every part is active. Can I make this really, really practical for you? Let's just start here by being active, every part doing their part. That means not only what we've been talking about this entire series, all of us being an active part of the church every day, serving in whatever industry that we've been in, but it's also being an active part of a church together, stirring each other up in all of those things. And so let me just give you three very, very practical things, but are things that if they wear away and we leave them behind, it threatens all the other ways that we try to be fruitful. Here's the first thing. If you're a part of the church, it's part which you are. That's who you are. It's part of your family rhythm. Here's what I want for Rebecca and I. And by the way, since I'm here early on Sunday, this falls on Rebecca's shoulders to do pretty much on her own week after week. And many of you understand what that's like. Maybe you're the only spouse pulling this and pushing this drive. But what our goal is for our, our family is that our family is so regularly, weekly a part of a church that when our kids leave our house, it feels foreign. I want it to feel foreign to not have a weekly involvement at their church. And there's many other parts of their life that they're going to leave behind, many other extracurriculars that they're not going to do one day, but I don't ever want them to leave behind a faith community, because that's who they are. And that sustains them through every season of life. Make it a family rhythm. Here's the second and third one, and for this, I want you to grab your cell phone. Can everyone grab your cell phone? If you're watching online, pick up your cell phone real quick. Um, Cooper City, grab your cell phone. West Pines Campus, grab your cell phone. Um, go to the City Rev app. Here's the second one. Find a place to leverage your gifts here at your church. Find a place to serve. What the Bible says, the strength of a church is every part, every part of the body being active. If this is your church home, find a place to serve. Right there on the homepage of the City Rev app, it can say, join a serving team. You'll find that place. You can today just fill out a couple options of where you might want to serve. You're not signing up, you're just asking for more information. We will get back with you this week. Find a place to serve. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't know where I'm gifted. I mean, just start somewhere. Can you imagine? Can we just talk about that just for a second? Can you imagine every part of just City Rev, but imagine if every church had this, if every church had thriving ministries filled with every part of the body doing their part. I mean, imagine when that person from our city is invited in. Imagine if we had a power of people using their gifts in kids and student ministries. I mean, just that alone, if we reclaim the next generation, what will that do for city transformation? Leveraging your gifts in kids ministry and student ministry. How about the number of people who pull in and everything in their life experiences, they're pulling in this parking lot says, I'm not going to be welcomed here. God is mad at me. I'm going to just turn around and leave. And we've had people just not even make it out into the parking lot. They pull in and they pull right back out. But maybe you're a welcoming, friendly face in the parking lot. You're a welcoming, friendly face at the door greeting people in. And you're cutting off at the knees the lies the enemy has already been telling them as they're driving to church. 
Find a place to serve in your church. Be an active part of the body. That's the sign of a healthy church. You can also sign up on your app. Here's number three. If you don't have a spiritual community, if you don't have brothers and sisters ministering to your family and you don't have brothers and sisters you're ministering to their family, if you don't have those Christians today, sign up for a group. Find out for more information about a group. You can do that right there on the homepage of the City Rev app. That's not a place where you go to get all of your needs met. That's never going to be the foundation of Christian community. It's where you go to serve and you find out as you're serving those other brothers and sisters and they're serving you, you find this beautiful relationship and that's, that is making you whole and healthy as you're walking on your calling out into the world to be the presence of Jesus Christ. City Rev, here is, here's what the Bible dreams over us. That every part of our church is active creating a healthy community, cultivating a community of city changers that go back out into the world. That's what Jesus wants for his church. Now I want to close with this story. And... Um, this is an old preacher story. I've probably told you this many years ago. I can't remember when, but it's a great story. Let me tell it to you. It's a little boy, and um, he's playing in the backyard. He finds a couple pieces of wood, and he gets an idea. He goes and rummages through uh, the shed in the wood, finds a, a shed in the backyard, and finds other little pieces of scrap wood, and he sits down, and he gets out some some, some nails and some glue and finds some string and some rope and he builds with those pieces of wood, he builds a boat. Not a big boat that he can fit in, but just a little toy boat. And he's so excited. You know, he tests it out in his bathtub, like it floats, like he, he did it well. He poured his heart and soul into his boat. And so he takes this little boat one day, he's like, okay, this is the day. I'm, I'm gonna do this. He takes this little boat down to the lake, and he's like ready to see it, and, and he ties a rope to the end um, so that he can, can maintain, you know, hold on it, and he puts the boat in the lake, and he starts pulling it as along the, way, the lake, and in his joy, his little boat is just sailing there on the lake, and as he's pulling it, all of a sudden, he, he feels something snap, and the rope breaks on this little boat, and the boat starts floating out into the lake. And so he starts chasing it around until slowly the boat's going out farther and farther and farther out of reach, and it's gone. And he's just holding the broken robe, walks back to his house, and he, he's just sad, and he's lost his little boat that he poured so much into. Well, a couple weeks pass by, and he's walking through his small town, and there's a toy store in his small town, and they have these windows where they show different uh, toys. Some of them are secondhand toys. Some of them are brand new toys. And he walks by and he sees there in the window his boat. <laughs> Obviously, the owner of the store was down by the lake one day and found this abandoned boat. And he had kind of washed it off, cleaned it off, and now was putting it in the window and was selling his boat for $12. And he walks in and he says to the owner, that's my boat. I poured everything into it. I made it. It's mine. I, I remember when I etched the little things into the side, that's my boat. And the shop owner says, yes, that is your boat for $12. <laughs> he says, you don't understand. That's my little boat. And he says, I'm sorry, son. I'm selling that for $12. And so the 
Little boy goes back to his house and he gets out his savings out of a little jar and he dumps all the coins and, and, and all the dollars that are crumpled up and he counts it out and he has, he has just enough to buy the boat. It's everything he has and he takes all of the money down to the toy store and he, and he hands off all the money to him. He says, okay, you can get the boat. And he walks out with this little boat and he looks down to the boat and he has this quiet moment where he looks at the boat and he says this, little boat, Twice you're mine. Once because I made you, and then twice because I paid for you. Saints, church, you're not your own. City Rev, you're not your own. Christian, you don't determine things about your life. You don't determine your involvement in church. You don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus because he made you. And then he paid for you. But you know what it's more like? It's more like the little boy standing at the shore of the lake, seeing his boat swim away and diving in after it, and drowning to save his boat. That's what the story's like. You'd say, child, don't do that. Don't lose your life. You've got your whole future ahead. Don't give up your life, little boy, for a boat. Do you realize the Lord of all that is the maker of heaven and earth who's seated on the throne and put and everything is put under his feet, the most glorious one that all the universe should worship, gave his life for us? That's what Paul wants us to dare to imagine the reality of how much he loves you. How much does he love you? He says, oh, I wish that you could imagine the height and depth and length and breadth of the love that Jesus has for you. And so we give everything back to our Savior because we're his. He not only... He not only made you, he paid for you. He put, your, he put his name on you. He signed his name, Christian, on your life. You have his name. You belong to him. Can you bow your heads with me? Let's close in prayer. Some of you are here, and today's the day you need to transform your view of your relationship to church because you don't get to define it. Some of you may be saying, look, I, I've, I've just defined it, what's comfortable for me or what fits me. I need to redefine it according to what God says and today's the day. Take a step, be a doer of the word, not a hearer of the word. Not only a hearer of the word. Others of you today, you might be saying, look, I, I've, I've just treated just Christianity just as religion, but I realize I want to make Jesus my Savior, Lord. I want to know that I'm a saint. I want to know that I'm spending eternity in heaven. I want to know that he's died and risen for me. I, I want to be on his mission. I, I want to be his. I want to belong to him. And today you need to give your life to Jesus and join his mission. And if that's you, you can do that right now. Don't spend another day away from your Savior. 
Don't spend another day feeling a million miles away, wondering if you have forgiveness. Find out now, today, give your life to him. Realize that he saved you and make him your Lord and King. If that's you, I want you to pray this prayer right there in your seat. Make this your prayer. Say, Jesus, silently say this to him, Jesus, you are my Savior. It's not that I I can't get to heaven on my own. You did it by your death and resurrection. You saved me. And now I'll follow after you. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your uh, prayer just then, here's what I want you to do. If you're watching online, grab your cell phone and just go to cityrev.org slash faith. If you're here, you can do that as well. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. Or you can grab that Get Connected card, fill out your information. If you're here, you can take that to guest services. We'll give you a Bible today. If you can't make it to guest services, you can just put that in one of the offering boxes. If you're going to cityrev.org slash faith, just fill out those questions they're answering. They're asking for you. Just answer those questions. We'll mail you a Bible. We want you to begin this journey with Jesus. Church, we're going to close with this song. We're going to remember how incredible our Jesus is, all that he's done for us. We're going to together act like the church that he's declared that we are, and we're going to lift up the name of our Lord Jesus, our Savior. Would you stand with me as we close?